0: I'm trying something different today in today's message. I'm going to take off my watch. I'm going to lay it right here. I'm not going to look at it. It's just a lot more comfortable that way. (laughs) I've seen some other guys doing it, so I know there must be a reason, but I do feel a lot freer now. (laughs) I want to share a confession of sorts today. I used to pastor a really shallow church. And I'm going to tell you a bit of how we got there. When I was a young man thrust into the role of pastor, and when I say thrust, it was an unexpected resignation. I was a young, at that time, still very unseasoned, very green youth pastor. And stepping into the role the next Sunday, someone needs to preach, I began to. Over the next several months, no one else stepping up and no one else accepting the call, I continued to and after about nine months of doing this, the church said, "Let's call this guy." Kind of I think in hindsight with the mentality, what have we got to lose? Church attendance in those days was running about one hundred and fifty, and if you'd asked me what my aim was, it was to build a big church. What can we do to get as many people here as possible? By many measures, the church wasn't healthy and And we were struggling in a lot of different ways, and I began a trajectory of church growth sort of principles, and being influenced by some of the models that were so prevalent in the culture at the time, I can remember reading in 1996, like a dog drooling over a bone, the purpose-driven church. I went out to Willow Creek in Chicago, and I saw church growth seminars. I even went, and I almost say it with great shame today, don't judge me, I even went out to the Crystal Cathedral and heard a lecture on church growth and church health. And using those principles, we began to grow and people began to come. As I look back now on one of those moments that sort of marked the pinnacle of of attendance growth, but certainly also marked a low point in terms of spiritual growth, we launched something on Saturday nights called Five Seventeen. Now, thinking ourselves to be really clever doing this, what we were actually doing was copying something that we had seen at North Point Church in Atlanta when they did a service called 722 on Tuesday nights aimed at college students young professionals. Well, not knowing exactly what 722 meant, I knew what 517 meant. I can tie this one to Scripture. That's 2 Corinthians 517. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Perfect. Different on purpose. 517 so we launched this second service on Saturday nights, and within a few weeks, we were just busting up the seams. Um, people were coming. We were really kind of surprised. Even got a, an article, a cover article on the front page of the religion section of the Palm Beach Post. I laminated this to keep it not as a reminder of success, but as a reminder of, of failure. That's a picture of a young me, 34 years old. I'm wearing a cool shirt that says 517 on it. Behind me was our brand new screen with some scripture on it, which I probably didn't explain very well, but it was there. Let me read you the indicting first paragraph of this article. A teenage girl with low-cut jeans and a bare midriff skipped through the crowd of worshipers leaving church on a recent Saturday night. She called up to her mother in the parking lot. She shouted enough for even passing cars on Jensen Beach Boulevard to hear, Man, tonight was awesome. And it was. We sang Bon Jovi and... And I preached a message that was probably more influenced by Bill Hybel than it was the Apostle Paul. But over those next several months, God began to work in my life and began to convict me and challenge me that what we were building here was something shallow and superficial. You know, when I came to First Baptist Church of Jensen Beach, we had, like many churches in our flock and our brand, Southern Baptist, we had a lot of members who were not attenders. I mean, a lot. We were averaging about 150, as I said, my first year. And we probably had, oh, I don't know, maybe maybe 1,000 members in those days. And I realized as an attempt to repair that problem, I was only facilitating it. Unintentionally, we were thinking we were doing great gospel work, but our gospel was a truncated one. Forgiveness only. We'll disciple later if we can, but at least we can get them into the kingdom. I remember one pastor saying... As he sort of denied the the need for discipleship in the church, he used an analogy of a a baseball player and a batting average. He says, you know, I hear these guys talking about, you know, we're not discipling them and they're falling away, but brother, I'd rather stand at that plate and hit 300 than not take a swing at all. And that's probably what their church was doing. As I look back at our numbers, that's probably what we were doing. Maybe batting about 300 in terms of those who were baptized and who really stayed. And I look back now and I wonder how many false conversions we really had. I wonder how many people made a decision in the moment, born out of emotion or sentiment? Or simply just as an insurance against maybe, in case it's real, going to a hell that they're not quite sure they believe in. We created a consumer, me-centered church. As I look back, I know in those years, many have fallen away. Over the next eight years of that church, I made it my point to be anything but purpose-driven or seeker-sensitive or anything else but Spirit-filled and Scripture-focused. And the church began to change, praise God, and we began to grow in a good sort of way. Disciples were made, and missionaries were sent, and God began to do things. But I thought in those days, what have we lost? And look at the culture of church around us. I don't know if any of you have looked in the last week or so at the latest report, 2022 State of Theology. If you haven't, Google that. State of Theology, it's a combined study done by Lifeway Christian Research, which is our own Southern Baptist arm of research, and Ligonier. And you'll see numbers that are absolutely shocking. And when I say shocking, don't pay so much attention to what the world thinks. I pay little attention to that myself, nor really care. I don't expect the world to uphold standards of truth and biblical beliefs. Look at what the evangelical church says they believe. In Jude verse 23, we're told to contend for the faith. Contend for it. The faith once and for all delivered to the saints. But the modern church, churches like us, evangelicals, we're surrendering the faith when huge percentages of us don't have a right understanding of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Don't have a proper confidence or trust in the Scriptures. Don't understand the role of the church, which is not just ancillary It's not just an accessory to your faith, but an absolute biblical essential to be connected to a body of believers. We wonder why we're losing. So I pray. I pray earnestly, and I ask you to pray with me. that God would make us a strong and healthy church. A church where we can look at one another and affirm each other's faith, where we can encourage one another to stay true, that we can help each other finish well, that we can look at one another and say, by God's grace, you and I, we will cross that line together. It will be said, not just of me, but as you look around at the people in this room with you who are part of this body, part of this fellowship, people who have made that commitment of membership, that covenant together, you can say, by God's grace, we will be able to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, together. Let's pray. Father God, I pray you speak to us through your word today. to Help us to see what we would miss, to understand what we might not, to want what we haven't wanted, and give us the power to do what we haven't done. Lord, be glorified in what we hear and how we hear it, and what we do with what we hear today. Lord, thank you for making us your people. Thank you for making us your sons and daughters. Lord, glorify yourself through this church, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Acts chapter 20, at the very beginning, and let me just set the stage for a moment. I so much appreciate Don Mills preaching last week, and it's it's so good to know, not just for my sake, um, if I have to be out, if something... Uh, requires me to be gone, it's certainly comforting to know. But it's good to know as a church that you have good and godly teachers and elders who can bring the Word to you. And that what we do here on a Sunday morning is not based on one person's personality. It's based on the power of the Word of God. And when you hear that and you receive it and you respond to it as that, then God is glorified, whoever it is that might be delivering it. So consider the context here just for a moment of what I'm going to share. And I'm not going to re-preach what Don shared. I appreciate Don's insight and wisdom last week. But there was a riot that just took place in Ephesus. I mean, Ephesus just went nuts. And they went nuts because of what the Apostle Paul was doing there, which ultimately was undermining their religious culture. Because as he displayed the power of the gospel, which is superior to every other power, and then all of those people creating all those false little emu- amulets and idols and all those things that fed their false culture of worship, gods that needed people, not gods that created people, Is they fed this false culture, then there's great resistance came because they realized if what Paul is saying is true, it's going to do more than just transform individuals and what they think about God. There's so much more here than just a private faith that's going to grow. This is going to turn everything upside down here. If people start believing that, if they start trusting in that, this whole culture around us, this whole world is going to change. And they were right to recognize that. I'm not sure that the modern church recognizes that so well. That the gospel which we proclaim is more about just your personal standing with God one day when you die. It's about a new life. It's about a new kingdom. It's about living in a whole different way. It's about having fealty and faithfulness to so a whole another kingdom, a whole new identity that brings us together in Christ. It says in verse 28 of chapter 19, you can scroll back just a little bit, or I say scroll because I'm digital here, but flip back if you're old school and you still use paper. I'm kidding. Paper's great. It's awesome. Don't write me. I get it. Don't email me how much you like paper, okay? That'll be (laughs) incongruent. When they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're trying to prop up this false religion the best that they can. They're trying to stir the crowd. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who are Paul's companions in travel. They're trying to find someone that they can prosecute for what's been said. Verse 32, sounds so much like every riot in every place in every time in history. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. You look at some of the junk that we see happening in cities and places and riots and protests. Fools gathering together to protest that which they know not. We don't even know why we're here, but we're mad about it. I want to make this point from that text. Because it's clear that something has happened here that threatens the system. It threatens the daily routines of people. It threatens the beliefs, the values, the very culture. And it challenged me with this thought, and I just present this to you without much commentary. If our gospel culture as a, as a people of God, as a church, what we believe the gospel is and does in us, if that's not colliding with our secular culture, then it's likely that we've already been assimilated far more than we realize. If what we believe as Christians, formed by the Word of God, transformed by the power of God's Spirit in belief of the gospel, if that doesn't put us at odds with the culture in which we live, maybe we're really being assimil- assimilated and don't realize it. You know, so many of the issues that are critical to Christians today are being falsely categorized, miscategorized as political issues. But they're not political issues. They're moral, scriptural, biblical issues. They're Christian issues. Life is a Christian issue. Life, beginning at conception, is a Christian issue. It's not a political issue. That's a biblical moral issue. And it really doesn't matter which party affiliation stands on the right side of truth. We stand on truth. We stand for these things. And if our beliefs aren't bringing us to some point of collision, so that at least we're being marginalized or minimized, mocked even, eventually persecuted, then we're probably doing it wrong. We're probably doing it wrong. We should be recreating culture. We're at least challenging the culture that we live in. And personally, personally, your faith, exerted in the public sphere, where you work and where you go to school, maybe even with your own family or friends, if there's not some tension there, now, let me just, I just need to do this poll for my own sake, okay? This is, this is extra notical. It's not in my notes. Just with no commentary here, how many of you have felt some level of tension because of your faith in Jesus with people that you're close to, whether that's family, friends, or people you work with? Raise your hand. You felt some tension there. Be okay with that tension. It is for that reason that you're there. Who else will be the witness? Who else will be the exemplar of what's true and what's right? Be okay with that tension. If your fidelity to King Jesus doesn't sometimes put you at odds with all the gods of this age, then maybe you're more compromised than you realize. Compromise is hard to see in the person who's compromised. It's easy to spot in somebody else, particularly someone that you haven't seen or talked to in a while, and you can see, wow, how did you get there? You didn't used to think this way. You didn't used to believe this way, but now you do. How did you get there? By many Steps of compromise. But it's hard to see in ourselves when we're doing this, when we're capitulating to the culture over and over. So here's a diagnostic question. I've read an interesting book. I don't know that I commend it to you yet because I haven't finished it, so I'll hold my commendation in reserve. But the book is called Being the Bad Guys by an Australian pastor named Stephen McAlpin. In his book about being the bad guys, he describes what's happening in our culture that now has sort of put us at odds. I mean, there was a time, particularly in American culture, Well, whether or not people agreed with you, believed what you believed, went to church with you, they at least considered you to be of good character. You know, there was a time in American culture, particularly in the Deep South Bible Belt culture, where those Christian folks were pretty good folks. The kind of person you'd like to have as a neighbor. The kind of person you might like to hire in your business. Uh, The kind of person that you might want your son or daughter to marry one day. Even if you weren't one, or even if you thought they were a little bit crazy a little bit out there, a little bit old-fashioned, you thought highly of them. Well, that's changing today. To now, to be a Christian, you're not wearing the white hat anymore. you're, You're wearing the black one. The enemy of our times. The enemy of culture. And we're seeing this over and over and over. And so the diagnostic question for us all is this. Just to think about. I want you to ruminate on this one. Are you willing to be the bad guys? I don't mean to be the jerks or the haters, the malcontents, the complainers. I'm talking about, are you willing to stand up against the culture that you live in so that people say, you're the problem? You're the reason we can't progress. You're the reason there's conflict. It's, it's you. It's your beliefs. It's your values. Are you willing to be that? Are you willing to be godly, even if it means being strange? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You got family or friends or neighbors already think you're weird. What's wrong with you? What are you? It's 2022, for goodness sake. What's wrong with you people? Are you willing to be considered strange? Are you willing to speak truth, even if it's divisive or unpopular? And Let me make a little note there to the side. When I say speaking truth, I don't simply mean speaking to the obvious lies of our secular culture. I mean speaking truth to the more pernicious lies of our religious one. Some of you were gathered with us Wednesday night for citywide prayer. You know, when you're gathered with people in prayer and people pray aloud, there's a word that we say together, typically. Let all God's people say, Amen. When you say Amen to a prayer, what you're saying is, I agree with that. I concur. May it be so, O Lord. Amen. And I listened to some of those prayers and I found myself saying, I can't say Amen to this. I can't say Amen to this. I can't concur. When someone stands up and prays against doctrine, Or theology. Someone said, God, we put theology above you. Well, theology simply means the study of God. I would challenge you to not ever think that way. You can't worship a God you don't know. We worship God in spirit and in truth. To know God is to love Him more, to trust Him more, to yield more to Him. Another one said, we've elevated doctrine over you, God. God forbid that we would ever think that or pray that, for doctrine simply means Truth. Truth. What is the truth of God? And there are so many false versions and visions of God in this world. We you speak truth even if it's divisive or unpopular. Listen. Truth and love are higher values in the hierarchy of God than unity. Now, love ought to create unity, but truth will sometimes subvert that unity. True unity has to be based on both. We don't disregard truth for the sake of false unity are you willing to judge rightly the sin that you see you know the favorite verse of non-believers today of secular people who know just enough of the bible to be damning the favorite verse i think at least today is this one judge not does the bible say judge not it does and the bible also says judge rightly and in the context of Jesus talking about judging not, not judging another believer for sins that you have not judged yourself for first, that you've looked to yourself first. That beam that's protruding from your eye before you seek to remove the speck from theirs. But the Scriptures also tell us to judge rightly, to speak rightly about what God has spoken. Will you judge rightly the sin that you see? And this is a big one. I know these are big whole sermon themes on their own. And so in a sense, I apologize for throwing out these whopper bombs. But all of us need to wrestle with this Do you fear God more or do you fear men more? At the end of the day, do you care more about what God thinks about what you've said, done, felt, or what people do? So in that sense, be the best bad guy you can be. Love God and love people and tell the truth and live a righteous life. That's a little bit of the background. Now we start the sermon. So now you can start listening and look at my watch. I'm going to talk about two cultures in Acts chapter 20. Very briefly, this is a two-point message. Two cultures. Two cultures that are foundational for any healthy biblical church. The first is a culture of encouragement. A culture of encouragement. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the Days of Unleavened Bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Now, be honest for a second here. Those of you who are faithful to your Bible reading, and you're doing your Bible reading plans, when you come to a passage like Acts 20, verses 1 through 6, tell the truth here, It's be good for your soul, you skip right over it. Raise your hand. All these names, Soper, Troas, Boaz, I can't even... I, what, what's, the, what's the meat of this? We skip right over right? Names matter. Now, they surely mattered more to the first century church who knew these men, knew their identities, knew their backgrounds, knew their testimonies, it mattered to them. In the telling of these names is the telling of testimony. It's interesting even some of the backdrop of some of these names. A couple of these, a couple of these men, just by virtue of how they're described and how their names are, you would say these are probably influential people. Men like Tychicus, Trophimus. But Secundus, anybody have an idea what Secundus means? Second. Probably a slave. A secondary person. Here in the economy of God, under the power of the gospel, you have... Elites and slaves, all equal in Christ. You have this new community of believers. And here's what they have done from all of these places where the gospel has gone Sopater from Berea, Aristarchus, Secundus, Thessaloniki, um, Gaius from Derby, Timothy from Leicester, Acts 16, um, from Galatia, Tychicus and Trophimus, Ephesus, all over, all the places where, these, where the gospel has gone. What do we see happening? Converts. Disciples being made. And not just converts, not just people saying, yeah, I believe that I want to go to heaven when I die. What do I need to say or pray? But people who are now are part of the movement. People who are now part of the team. These are gospel kingdom people now traveling with Paul. Nothing is more encouraging to a healthy gospel declaring church than the fruit of discipleship. To look at what God has done over time. And to be able to see testimony after testimony that are living examples of Ephesians chapter 2, but such such were some of you, but Christ. Nothing would be more encouraging to us than that. To be able to look back and say, look what God has done. Look whom God has saved. Look what God has done in their lives. Look now where the gospel is going. Because there were no Christians at that business, there were no believers on that team, there were no Christians in that classroom. I'm the first Christian in my family, and look what God has done. That's the power of real discipleship there. It says a few times that Paul encouraged them. How does Paul encourage them? How did he encourage them? I don't see Paul as a real rah-rah sort of guy. I, I just don't. Paul would not make a very compelling motivational speaker. If Paul were paraded in front of modern churches today... I don't think anyone would want what he's selling, honestly. Small of stature. Not particularly handsome in appearance. Physically beaten down over the years of violent abuse and suffering simply for following Christ. He was actually rather plain in his teaching. He said to the Corinthians, I decided to make known nothing to you except Jesus and Him crucified. Probably redundant. Probably very methodical probably very plain, and probably living a life that most people really don't want any part of. You're saying, if I follow Christ, I get that? Pass. And yet, he's encouraging them. It wasn't by his personality. It wasn't by clever stories. It wasn't by emotional manipulation. If you want a hint, look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're in Ephesus, by the way, Acts chapter 20. If you want to read the parallel of what God is doing... Read Acts, these later chapters, and put Ephesians beside it. Ephesians chapter 4. What do he say is the work of the church and the work of those who teach and lead? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature the fullness of Christ. So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How is he encouraging them? He was encouraging them to do the work of the ministry. He was encouraging them in biblical unity based on the knowledge of God. He was encouraging them in maturity in Christ to be like Jesus. He was encouraging them in discernment and theology so that we're not children anymore tossed about by every wind of doctrine. I would say in a nutshell, he encouraged them with the Word. It's the Word of God that was forming them. It was the Word of God being taught to them that was shaping what they thought and believed and how they acted. That's how he encouraged them. He encouraged them by opening up the word and speaking it to them. The words that God had given him. How do we encourage one another, by the way? If it's not just the work, and it's not, hear me, hear me on this point. It's not just the work of the apostles. It's not just the work of the elders to encourage the people. The work of encouragement is is ours together. It's each other's. It's for you to know well the people that you are a family with. People that you're connected to supernaturally in Christ, and to encourage them. Now, it's fine if you let me know sometimes, hey, do you know so and so is going through this? So and so is hurting and suffering of this. But it's not fine if you don't know and you don't do anything, if you don't encourage. That's our role together. We encourage one another. If you want a hint on encouragement, consider Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider. How to stir up one another to love and good works. That's encouragement. How do we stir each other up? How do we stir each other up to love each other and do the right thing, do the things that God wants us to do? How do we do that? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I can't tell you from that passage everything there is to know about encouragement, but I can tell you this. I can tell you where it starts. It starts by showing up. It starts by showing up. It starts by being in the room. It starts by being here when the body of Christ gathers together. There's more to it than that, but there's not less to it than that. And in fact, there's a contrast here. Not neglecting, neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. When you're neglecting to meet with a body, and you say, hey, I don't know if you notice this or not, but we're, we're like, we're here. I get it. But everyone's not here, and you know those are not here, that ought to be here. The starting point for the church, not an optional end point, The starting point for the church is to gather. That's what it means to be the church. The ecclesia of God. That's your Greek lesson for today. Ecclesia. Gathered. The gathered people of God. That's what we are on Sunday mornings. We're the gathered people of God and our role is to encourage one another. When you neglect to meet together, you're discouraging it. You're discouraging each other. You're discouraging our evangelistic witness because there are hundreds of us out there Hundreds of us out there who say they're members of Calvary and they don't ever come. They don't don't show up. They're not here. And we're out there trying to reach that same community that they're all mixed in, intermingled with. As we're trying to evangelize somebody at the office, they know somebody else at that office who says they're a member here and shows no interest in spiritual things. And doesn't go to church. And lives a life completely indistinguishable from the gospel. Or somebody out there that's a malcontent or a complainer. Doesn't go to church, but they love taking shots at the church they used to go to. Sometimes sprinkling in a bit of truth. Sometimes telling outright lies. And we're trying to evangelize them. We're trying to represent Christ out there. It's discouraging for our evangelism. It's discouraging for the new believers in this room. Who are preaching one thing to when they come into membership and we're saying, this is what a member is. and This is what a member does. And this is what we aspire to together. And then they spend six or seven months among us. They say, but a lot of those people don't do that, do they? I guess being a Christian isn't quite what I thought it was after all. And we keep reinforcing those old stereotypes that we're trying to undo through generations of church malpractice. Just get saved and then live how you want. As if that's real salvation at all. We encourage one another by showing up. First of all, it's a culture of encouragement. Second culture. A culture of resurrection. A culture of resurrection This morning as we gathered in prayer in the sanctuary at 8 o'clock, as we begin every Sunday praying for what happens in this room, what happens in our small groups, what happens from preschool through every life group, and, and praying for the people. One of the things we prayed for in line with Paul's great prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 is that we would understand the power of the resurrection. Not just believe it as a historical event, but understand, what does it really mean that Jesus is resurrected and that same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us who now believe? What does resurrection power look like? That we would glory in the resurrection, that we are made new in Christ and one day we'll be raised to everlasting life. What does that mean, this power of the resurrection? Consider the rest of this passage. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Let me pause there for a moment. First of all, to say thank you that none of you said amen to that. (laughs) I also want to point out that this was probably an evening service, okay? So it's not like Paul went all day long. Now, if you're looking for some application to this, some of you are looking at some seriously low-hanging fruit here. No, the problem here is not Paul's long-windedness, okay? Nor should you be pointing fingers at the people around you that you notice sleeping every single Sunday. There's something more at stake here. It's a funny sermon. I I get it. It's, It's a funny text in a not really funny way. I mean, Paul's preaching. He keeps going on and on. Some kid sitting in the window, falls asleep. Thankfully, you'll fall asleep in a chair, and the worst thing that could happen to you is you'd land on the floor, but he went a couple stories down. But Look what happens next. But Paul went down and bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That means they were a lot comforted, not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged. and We'll get to that text next week. Let me make a statement here and then explain it for a moment. I want you to notice what's going on in this text. It seems like just an interesting add-on here. Um, It's a focal point of the text. Eutychus, falling out of a window, dying and being raised, or is it something else? Here's what I want you to consider for a moment. The real life of the church, the real life of the church, is best experienced in its normal, healthy Everyday rhythms of grace practiced faithfully. Let me say it again. The real life of the church, the real life, what we all ought to love and look forward to and pray to see it happen, is best experienced in its normal, healthy, everyday rhythms of grace practiced faithfully. If we're waiting to see the eutychuses raised from the dead, we're probably missing the point. The point here is not so much this incredible miracle. The point here is what was the church doing? I read a little sermon by A.W. Tozer this week where he makes an analogy that I think would make sense to all of us even if we're not farmers by trade. He's talking about the work of plowing. The work of plowing. That's the context. Listen to what he says. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow. And the plow has come as plows always come, practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age old and ever renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature and consummate. The grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. And he said this Nature's wonders follow the plow. It makes sense, doesn't it? Nature's wonders follow the plow. Do you want to see the miracle of new life and creation? You want to see the beauty of new growth? you want to see the fruit and the flower that comes through the plow. What is the plow for the church? What is the, what is the faithful work that the church does week after week after week after week? I remember a church member several years ago saying, so what are we going to do now? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, last year we were doing this and you're announcing that and now that's done. So what are we going to do now? And I can remember my answer, and even as, I was coming, as it was coming out of my mouth, I thought, he's not going to be satisfied with my answer. Because what it said is this. Well, we're going to, we're going to keep doing what we've been doing. Well, what do you mean? Well, we're going to keep doing We're going to keep gathering. We're going to keep, we're going to keep doing He was wanting for something new. What's, what's a new thing? What's a new big thing? What's a new banner? What's a new theme? What's a new poster? And our work is the work of the plow. Look what they did. What did the church do? They gathered they gathered. These new believers made right with God in Christ, forged into a family by the Spirit of God, identifying as such through the communion, they gathered and they gathered around the Lord's table. Why did they gather around the table? Because that's their identity. That's their affirmation. That's their confession of faith being repeated again and again. We are God's people made so by the blood and body of Christ. They gathered around the Lord's table and they gathered around God's word. It is as simple as it is profound. God's people gathering, God's people being in communion with one another and real communion and fellowship. The sort of fellowship that can be broken, that someone can be removed from if someone's life no longer gives evidence of salvation, if someone is no longer walking according to the commitments they made that the gospel requires of them. If someone demonstrates a denial of Christ and his rule in their lives, people are excluded from that table. They're made outsiders, just as Paul taught so clearly to the Corinthians. But for those in, it's that sweetness of real fellowship. Not because we all like the same thing. In the early church, there were Gentiles. They were were Greek and pagan before they came to Christ. And then there were were Jews whose parents and grandparents and great-grandparents could trace their lineage back to the patriarchs. there were different hues of skin. And there were different levels of economy. And there were different positions in the society. And here's what they found. They found we're more alike because of Christ than we were different because of any of these other things. And this likeness we have in Christ is bigger than every other likeness. It's who we are. And they came together. They gather, they gather around the table and they gather around God's word. And so that's what's happening here. Paul's preaching and he's awesome. Somebody said to me at the door the other day, you need to be clear sometimes when you're preaching and you're talking about how awesome Paul is, that we know that you're not talking about yourself. Okay, so AP, that's Apostle Paul. I'm PA, Paul Anthony. So let's get those clear. So AP is preaching and he's an awesome preacher. And he's dropping these huge bombs and they're listening. Except Eris, except the, th- this guy. Um, he's sitting in the window here. Eutychus. You know what Eutychus' his name means? Any of you have this in the footnotes of your study Bible? I didn't know this. Somebody says, how do you find these things? I don't know. Notes, study Bibles, commentaries. I wouldn't know this on my own. Eutychus. You know what his name means? Lucky. <laughs> Lucky. You know, it's like that three-legged dog with one eye and mange and everything. Goes by the name Lucky. Here's Eutychus. Lucky sitting in the window. <laughs> he falls out, and two amazing things happen. Two amazing things happen when he falls out that window. And you're looking at this text, and you're thinking, "I only see one amazing thing." I'm going to tell you, there's two amazing things here. Don't miss this. Number one, God worked through Paul to resurrect him. Don't be confused by the language, okay? It's the language of hope, not the language of of hurt. He was dead and he was resurrected. This does put Paul in some very select company, by the way. You talk about God's endorsement of Paul's ministry and validating Paul in all of these new gospel places. Well, now Paul joins a very lofty company of saints Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and Peter, and now Paul. The only ones we see that God afforded miracles through like this. So that's one miracle. It's big. But because I don't think it's the primary, I think it's, it's beautiful and it alludes to so many things. It alludes to the power of the resurrection. But understand, Eutychus, like Lazarus, though he was raised physically, still has to die. So being raised physically is not the end-all, be-all. You just need to know that. I'm just throwing this in here for a moment. If one of your family members dies and it causes great pain, that they should be brought back to life. It could be amazing, it could be great, but it's not the end-all, be-all, because they're still going to face death and judgment again. It's the same thing with physical healing. You know, I have a son who's profoundly autistic. There aren't many days in the last 20 years that I have not prayed for his healing. But his physical healing is not the end-all, be-all. His supernatural healing is. That when he's raised bodily in Christ, there's no pain or suffering, no crying, no mourning, no sickness, no death. That's that's the win here. So there's some victory here by him being raised, but I don't want to put too much focus on that because, because the text doesn't and the church didn't. They didn't completely change their course of direction at this point and say, dude, we got to start going to where dead people are and start praying that dead people will come back to life because if we could start raising dead people, man, think how many people would come and join this movement. It's almost like an afterthought. If you're reading this text, it's like, I mean, l- listen us how it reads again. It's fascinating. Paul went down, bent over him, taking him up his arms, said, do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when he had gone down and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a long while until daybreak. That's miracle number two. They went right back to worship in the Word. Did you catch that? They went right back to it. I mean, you think that would be it. Like, whoa, whoa, hold up. Let's talk about what just happened here for a moment. But they knew that the power of the church and God's work through them was not in the rare and the exceedingly obviously supernatural, but was in the routine, the rhythms of grace. God's people gathered together as a people. God's people sharing baptism and communion with one another. God's people hearing the word and receiving the word. And I put this statement as sort of a summary statement. So let me read it to you. We may, at God's own discretion, experience on occasion the visibly, profoundly, shockingly miraculous. We may... We should not discount that. If God should choose to do that or work in that way, so be it. We may experience that, but it is the consistent faithful work and witness of the Word that gives new life to the spiritually dead and renews life for the spiritually sick or weak. We may experience that Eutychus moment, but we're much more likely to experience the every time we gather moment of sowing, plowing, praying of teaching of saying and singing of praying and waiting for god to work i'll leave you with this question and it's a question i borrow from a very helpful book called word centered church word centered church by jonathan lehman and in his introduction he asked this question and i ask it of you and then i'm going to close What's the one thing we need to create and grow at church? What's the one thing we need to create and grow? Actually, to create and grow a church. What's the one thing we need to create and grow a church? Leaving aside the matters of the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, and ministerial offices, what is absolutely necessary? A building? A program? Answer. God's Word working through God's Spirit. The one essential. God's Word working through God's Spirit. Somebody in a group of people has to pick up a Bible and read it. And someone has to explain it so that people will understand it. And when this happens, the Spirit begins to work upon people's hearts, causing them to believe the words and give a proper weight to them. The people then repeat the words in their songs and in their prayers. They repeat the words of God to one another throughout the week. And they call still others to believe those words. Their lives begin to be shaped by the words, so they begin to live differently at home, at work. and They discover that these words are life-giving, hope-giving, and love-producing. That's it. That's what we do. That's what it means to be a church. That's a life-giving church. I want you to pray with me this morning. As well, you bow your heads in prayer and consider what your response is going to be, I want you to spend... Just a couple moments and just contemplation, thought. On the business of our days and weekends, we we afford ourselves precious little time to think, to consider, to meditate, to contemplate. With your heads bowed, I just ask of you, I put a little statement in your notes just to prompt you, therefore I, therefore I what? What is my therefore from this today? As a believer, as what you heard prompted you to do anything different? As a church member, to love differently or care more explicitly or to pray more particularly or specifically? What is, it, what is your for? To talk more confidently about Christ? Maybe your therefore has a person's name attached and God wants you to minister to them as a brother or sister in Christ, as a member of this body. What's you're there for? If you're here and you're not a believer, what have you heard? God is calling you into something great. He's calling you into a whole new life. I mean, it's not just believing something different or trying to live in a different way that's just not natural to you. It's calling you to a new life, to not be who you used to be to be who He created you to be. It's sin that not only damns us before God in judgment, but it destroys us, how we think and how we live and how we feel and everything about us, it's a death bringer. No one conquers it, overcomes it. We're all slaves to it until we're set free supernaturally. God wants you to set set you free of, of sin and condemnation for it. He wants to bring bring you into a relationship with Him that's real and genuine, that's life-changing, life-giving. And He wants to give you a family, a people, a place. Not a building or a program, but a people, a family. What's your response? Maybe you're here this morning and you're a believer and you're thinking about church, looking for church. Maybe something I described today strikes a chord in your heart, your spirit, and the Spirit of God echoes it. He says, yes, what He's saying is true. Maybe that's what you're looking for in a church. That's what you need in a church. Perhaps you would consider being part of this family and committing yourself to us for the sake of Christ and the gospel. What is your there for this morning? As music plays, I just want you to pray and think. Talk to the Father. If you're not a believer yet, I can't pray you into the kingdom of God. I can't have you repeat a phrase and then confirm or affirm for you that you're in the kingdom of God. But I can tell you this. The Bible promises you that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do you need to call on? You need to call on Him in repentance. Father, forgive me for I have sinned. I am a sinner. I'm in need of Your forgiveness. Father, I have lived under self-rule. I want to live under Your rule. And to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus. That the means to your forgiveness of sins is the punishment that God put on Jesus who was sinless. And that Jesus died for your sins as He died for mine. Jesus was raised physically conquering sin. He wasn't its victim. Death is sin's punishment and Jesus destroyed it. And He was raised physically and He's coming again. If you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus crucified, risen, coming again. You too can be saved. Commit your life to Him today. What is your response? Father, by your Spirit into every heart, I ask you to speak today. Draw to yourself those who are not yet yours so that they will be. I pray that people will respond to you in faith today, believing and confessing and trusting. And I pray that our church will be strengthened to persevere for the sake of the mission and for the glory of your name. For these things, I pray in Jesus' name.